welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone that I'm a massive fan of, Thomas Anselmi of the band Slow, of course, and of copyright, and there's just so much that we get into in this one. This is an incredible conversation, but more on that in a second. First, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me at turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. Drop me an email there, or my brother, who actually checks that email more than I do, and he will get the message to me. If you would like to find me on various forms of social media, I can be found at at left for damien If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way of doing that is by going over to iTunes, subscribing to it writing a review and rating it or wherever you listen to this podcast. Um, if there is a way to rate it, please do because that lets other people know about it. And if you don't want to do that, um, it's real easy to, I don't know why you wouldn't, but if you didn't want to do that, you could just tell your friends. That's another way to support this podcast. Speaking of supporting this podcast, this podcast would not be possible without the fine, loving, helpful, kind support of the fine folks at Vans who just came aboard and said, Damien, do what you do. And just keep doing this podcast, and we're just going to keep, uh, you know, supporting it. So you can just book, you know, what kind of guests you want to book. And uh, they actually brought me out this past weekend to Forum Music Festival in Arizona. It was a really, one of the most amazing festivals I've ever been to. You have to write an essay to be able to go to this festival. Anyway, they they, uh, brought me out there to do a live turn out of punk. That will be coming soon for you, and it's awesome. It's with Horror and Vagabond. I normally don't do, like, spoilers for stuff that's coming up in the future, but I'm so excited about this one because this is one of those ones that, you know, just proves the turn out of punk thesis in a major way. But more on that when that episode comes out. But I just want to say thank you so much to everyone at Vans for, you know, helping this podcast out, you know, and just bringing me out to do fun things like that because I got to sleep in a tent in the desert. And otherwise, this tent, I think, cost, like, thousands of dollars for the weekend. It was a very glamorous tent. It was it was very, very comfortable, the bed in it. Um, but it was, you know, I've never slept in a tent in the desert before. And I played a lot of festivals. That was just something I've never done. But anyway, uh, if you would also uh, look on all the feeds that come out for this podcast, you'll see there's other podcasts in the Turn Out of Punk family, including Turn Out of Punk Footnotes, hosted by Chris O'Toole and myself, and Oil and Flowers, hosted by Buddha Blaze, where I'm like his sidekick. Uh, one is about nerding out about this podcast. The other is about cannabis. Um, f- find out which one by listening. You know, I think it should be fairly self-evident by the names, but hey, you never know. So find out by listening. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, we have someone who is, you know, I say it in this episode, one that has written one of the great all-time songs. Slow were a band that was around for a really short period of time, but they had kind of an indelible effect on all of Canadian music. You know, like they're one of those bands that it it has not been the same. <laughs> Uh, but that, that is the name of the song, you know, that still gets played, gets radio airplay to this day here. It's like one of our, you know, big kind of alternative rock songs. And 
it's a great song. It's like an unbelievable song. And they have a lot of really cool songs. And so when the good friend, Melanie Kay, shout out to Melanie Kay. She's responsible for a lot of great guests coming on the show over the years. And she's a good friend of mine too. Uh, but when Melanie said, hey, would you like to talk to Thomas and Salemi from Slow? I was like, absolutely. So we got a chance to sit down and talk. And now... I had no idea where this was going to go. You know, I, I was a fan of the band and I knew we came out of punk rock, but you know, I've never really, I think had a guest on here who has a more kind of, uh, uh, differing opinion from myself as to what makes punk and hardcore so great for me. It's the fact that it tears down the wall between audience and performer. And for him, it, that's one of the worst things that it did was tear down that wall. But you'll hear all about this in the podcast. Um, the opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect turned out of punks, of course, but it's a, it's an amazing conversation. He's someone who has a lot of really interesting opinions. There's a lot of amazing stuff in here. A lot of stuff that I never knew. Uh, a lot of funny stories. I'm not going to blather on because it's a really long podcast. So I'm going to let you listen to it. Uh, I guess the only other thing I have to add to tell you about is, uh, no, I don't got anything else. I think that's it for this week. I would like to apologize for my voice. It's from all the traveling this week. Oh, and also, Fucked Up played a show on the subway platform, like uh, the lower bay station, the haunted station. One time, my producer from uh, Much Music got attacked by a ghost down on that station. Anyway, Fucked Up played a show there. So that's why my voice is a little hoarse. And not because there was a ghost. I didn't see any ghost this time around. I was not there for very long, mind you. So that's probably why I didn't see any ghosts. And then also, I guess, you know, sleeping in the desert was awesome, but you know, there's a lot of people looking to party at a festival. So I was up late two nights in a row. So that's probably why my voice is a little hoarse. So I would like to apologize for that, but that is it. So sit back, relax and enjoy Thomas and Salemi on Turned Out a Punk. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, as we've just been, you know, half an hour before this talking about everything except slow, I am now worked up to a fever kind of pitch <laughs> to talk to you about slow. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> but I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, Tom, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I was living in Tucson at the time, um, and we were living in this kind of uh, slightly uh, ghetto housing complex, um, you know, all stucco and low-rise, 70s kind of ugly buildings. And um, I remember that the newspaper came. I must have been maybe 11, maybe maybe 10, and the newspaper had headlines about the Sex Pistols, I think, vomiting at Heathrow or something. And it was the first time that I had ever seen my stepfather, who was, you know, a, a real kind of, you know, uh, anti-establishment, cynical kind of guy that marched in the civil rights movement and, you know, like, was like, a you know, real product of the 60s kind of 
um, but certainly not uh, conservative in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just disgusted, you know, absolutely <laughs> shocked and disgusted. And I immediately was like, okay, now what is this? You know, what is this thing that can actually shock my stepdad um, and is offensive to him? And, you know, I was like, kind of finally, you know, like, here's, here's something I'm interested in. And so then, uh, I guess that was, yeah, it must've been 70. Well, I don't know, I guess maybe 77, you know? And, um, I, I, it took me, you know, a couple of years before I ended up actually buying Nevermind the Bollocks and, and actually getting into punk rock. And that was really a product of, of living in Vancouver and, um, you know, being interested in, and, and then I started going to this record store called Quintessence that was like the, the record store attached to the label or the label that was attached to the record store, mm-hmm. which was, you know, the, as you know, the label that put out like the first DOA records and, and pointed sticks yeah. subhumans, yeah. like everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So, then- so I, I started going in there quite a bit, you know, and, and Grant McDonough, who was the guy that, ended up starting Zulu records was uh, just a kid that worked there, you know, and that was in the day when, you know, a lot of the records that you bought, if they weren't on the radio, which none of this stuff was, then it would just get recommended to you by someone, you know? So I bought a lot of records just on his recommendation. Before, before you moved to Vancouver, back when you were in, in Tucson, even like, were you into rock and roll already by the time you heard about the Sex Pistols? No, I was just, you know, most of my musical um, stuff came from just what I grew up on. My, my parents had good taste in music, so, yeah. you know what I mean? It was kind of like the Beatles, the Stones, you know, the band, you know, like all that stuff. It's like, you know, um, punk rock was the first music that was kind of like my music, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was the first concert you went to? It doesn't have to be the punk concert, but like just first concert. Um... I think that the first concert I went to was Van Halen Women and Children first tour. That's a good tour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a good that was good. Where and yeah. so and was that when you were still in Arizona or is that by the time you got to Vancouver? No, that was in that was in Vancouver. Yeah. At the uh, Coliseum. And so when when you what drew you to Quintessence? Like were you buying records at other places and did you hear about it or like how did you find out about that store? Um I I think that uh, that the f- I think that I bought Nevermind the Bollocks downtown, and I think that I found out that um, you know that Quintessence specialized in punk from someone. So then I went there, and I started hanging out there quite a bit actually. Like I, I would just go there, you know, for an hour or two, talk to Grant, you know, find out what was up. I was you know pretty thirsty for for knowledge, you know, it's like sort of gets under your skin, right? It's Mm -hmm. like kind of punk is kind of a, um, you know, at that point, especially was just a very kind of secret thing that really, you know, people didn't even understand what it was really, you know, um, in my, in school or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So where did you kind of go? Like, actually, were there any kids in your school that did get at the time? Were you meeting other kids that were kind of getting into it? Yeah, but not too many, you know, one or yeah. two. Yeah. <laughs> the few and the proud. Yeah. And, you know, and, and of course, like, I, it was kind of past the point where, 
you know, spiky hair and, you know, all that stuff was already kind of seeming ridiculous to me, you know, as, as, as something to chase, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I never really, you know, I mean, there were a lot of cool kids that were really older. Um, I remember being in grade seven and it was the summer after grade seven and I was in that family housing at UBC and, and, um, I decided for some reason, I have no idea why, cause I hated any kind of social situations, um, decided to have a party at my parents' house. I just don't, and all the, and so it's kind of like, so, you know, there were quite a few kind of roving punks in the UBC courts, as they were called, which was the student housing. And, and they kind of showed up hearing that the class was being played in my, in my parents' house, you know, and, uh, it was kind of a social moment, you know, where, uh, where I was suddenly interfacing with like, you know, actual guys with spiky hair and, you know, like studded belts or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but you- that was never really my trip, you know, like, because, uh, like I said, by the time that I was that age, um, 13, it was kind of like already, you know, there were a lot of guys like guys that played in no, no exit or East Van Halen or et cetera. They were growing their hair out. They were like kind of you know, it was it was a pretty early shift in Vancouver towards that thing where you know, which eventually what you know is what kind of the whole grunge thing came out of, which was this kind of melding of hard rock and punk rock. You know, mm-hmm. and I always feel Vancouver doesn't get you know talked about because there were like I, like you know like not that you guys sound grunge, but like slow to me fits in with bands like the U Men bands like green river in, in like the sense that you guys were taking punk, but you know, you're putting the R and B into it. You're putting different things into it and kind of making a, a sound. That's really like something that, that is the Pacific Northwest. To me. I feel that too. Yeah, I feel that too. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times cause I always get asked about this, but it's just kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard in perspective now because, of course, you know, this has all been done a million times at this point. But it's really hard to kind of wrap your head around, you know, this idea of kind of mixing, you know, the music uh, that got you beat up with the music of the people doing the beating. You know, <laughs> like, like it's, it was actually um, very, you know not liked by anyone, not liked by the people that were actually into rock and not liked by the people that were into punk for the most part, you know, mm-hmm. punk rock had become quite conservative by the time that, that slow was playing. It was really like, it had become much more about community and much less about kind of, you know, uh, crowd consciousness. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It became much more kind of about this idea that, you know, you're a punk, I'm a punk, I made this fanzine, we're trading, we're doing this. It's like, it's like much more like a social thing rather than kind of like this band is like, you know, terrifying and I'm here. And, you know, the, the, the distance between performers and audiences started to break down, which was definitely a part of the intention of punk rock. But ultimately, those first bands, you know, if you went and saw the Ramones, you know that the Ramones stood apart and were 
you know, stars really, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. whereas if you went and saw whatever, seven seconds and they're sleeping on your couch and you know what I mean? They're, they're like hanging out with you. It's like a different thing, right? It's this community aspect of punk rock. And, um, and that is something I've never been drawn to. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have any kind of feeling for that. I, I, I personally, as a performer, um, you know, I, I, I don't, um, I don't, in, I don't engage that way, you know? No, it's, it's, and you're right. Cause it is, <clears throat> that's the shift that kind of happens where you have like the, 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 the birth of the, the idea of the punk rock scene, as opposed to, I guess, punk bands playing two punk kids. Yeah. And I, and I really think that, that that was kind of, you know, obviously any kind of crowd politics in small groups like that becomes restrictive, mannered, you know, censorious, judgmental, et cetera, because crowds always work in the same way, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, it's crowds essentially kind of tend to adopt, um, you know, the, the loudest voices <laughs> as their own, you know, and move, gravitate towards that. So really like, you know, it was, it was seen as kind of a betrayal, I think, to a certain degree, you know, like punk rock had an ethic, punk rock was about this and don't do this and do do that. And all of a sudden, like what was sort of this pure rebellion had become kind of something that really, uh, we were rebelling against, you know, where, what was your first punk show? Um, probably before this period, obviously, but what was the first time you went and saw like a band that you would describe mm. as a punk band? I think probably subhumans at, oh, at, my, at my, at my high school. <laughs> at your high school? Um, yeah. <laughs> like for yeah. a dance or was it just like an after school event or what was no, the. No. Well, I went to alternative schools pretty quick. I yeah. went, you know, I, 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 uh, and so, you know, they can't, they would play high schools. Subhumans played a lot of high schools. That's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a good show. That was like, you know, maybe 30 people in a classroom with, you know, the subhumans. And in my experience, it's now the only Canadian punk band that's taught in high school classrooms. What? <laughs> because of uh, the Squamish Five. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I can remember yeah. that being brought up in my class. Like, oh, the one of the members had played in a punk band. And I was like, oh, yeah. my God, it finally works out. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, that's, I mean, that's an interesting part of the two, you know. Be, I mean, that was obviously, by the time that was happening, Slow was fully formed and, and, and playing shows. Um, but, you know, that was an interesting time, too, to kind of go back to that. It's like, you know, this this idea again, it's just kind of like you know, uh, the five and, and, and the politics around that and, and sort of, you know, a lot of kind of think for yourself or else, you know, kind of thing. Like it it was, you know, I, I found the politics around that. I, I didn't, I didn't buy it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't, I thought the, that the five should, you know, I thought that they should, um, you know, basically whatever, whatever they had done, I did, I was certainly was not ready to embrace it fully or, or think that it was a great idea. Um, and, uh, and that was, you know, that was a big deal in Vancouver. That was, you know, things became highly politically charged and, and, you know, the, our band was just so much not that because, you know, for me, I just, I felt that, that slow was kind of, 
in an opportunity because it was at a point when suddenly the mainstream was starting to look at this idea of like, oh, it's like college rock or it's like indie rock mm-hmm. or what, you know, I don't think it was called that yet. Alternative rock, you know, and, and we were suddenly playing in weird mainstream situations. And, you know, and my way of dealing with that was just basically to try and fuck things up you know and that was my feeling of of rebellion you know what i mean it wasn't my feeling of rebellion was not based on any kind of dogma or um ideology you know it's more just sort of like i don't uh like what i'm seeing right now and i'm gonna try and go somewhere else you know in you know in 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 a performance you know was was that sort of you know, cause it seems like it's almost like a divide that you're describing comes at that point. Right. Did it divide the sea in a way? Oh, definitely. You know, I think definitely. And I think that, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to, you know, you read all this shit about slow. It's like, it's really hard to realize how totally unpopular we were at for, <laughs> for quite, quite a number of shows, you know, people just did not know what to make of us at all. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. When, uh, I guess we had you like played bands, uh, back, like when you were in high school, were you starting to do music th- that early? Yeah, I was in a band, uh, when I was 13 called the psychotic dick bites. And, Whoa, uh, that's a name. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was kind of me and these three kind of long haired dudes. It was very kind of stooges in the way that it looked. Cause everybody was like, you know, I went to this alternative school called, uh, university hill it was kind of on the way out of being an alternative school but it had like you know murals of like you know janis joplin and hendrix in the halls and it was like a hippie school you know yeah Yeah. so you know i i had some hippies playing with me and and uh you know it was kind of this this uh punk band kind of but you know i really there just weren't enough punk kids to get to play you know so it was kind of i just took took what I could get and got on stage. And afterwards, um, after we played the gym teacher, whose name was Hank Liff, um, held me up against these lockers by my throat, held me by my throat, you know, above, you know, with my, my feet literally dangling and, and said, looked up into my face. His face was beet red, you know, had this sort of large, you know, countenance big fat face with like you know giant kind of viking beard and said to me that's the most disgusting thing i've ever seen in my entire life and i was just like wow this is fucking great i I fucking i always hated this guy and look at i'm finally fucking finally in control he's i cannot handle it you know so i i I felt that you know i felt that power you know i i was gonna say like gym teachers even at an alternative school always seem of a type oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah definitely definitely (laughs) um were you did you guys play out beyond that one show no, man. And, and the fucked up thing is that the psychotic dick bites after that show, because we played with East Van Halen uh, and um, this band, the Droogs, and uh, then this other band, Missing Children, that actually Christian, that plays guitar and slow, uh, was the singer of. And they had this song, I remember, that was like, it was like, your children are missing. Where have they gone? Perhaps you'll find them down in the bog. It was like, a, oh. it was like, a, 
it was because of Olsen, right? Clifford yeah. Olsen was killing all these kids. He still hadn't been caught. Yeah. Everyone, everyone knew there was a child killer at large. And, um, you know, no one was allowed out after dark. Um, and uh, he, uh, and anyway, that brings me to my next point, which was that we got offered this show uh, downtown, you know, after that. I, I think it was with East Van Halen or something. And, um, and my mom wouldn't let me out of the house because of Clifford Olson. And, um, and what happened is that Jello Biafra came to that show actually. <laughs> and I would have been playing for Jello Biafra <laughs> at 13, but that's not what happened. What happened is that Clifford Olson ruined it for everyone. Wow. Yeah. You guys could have been signed to AT. Maybe I don't even know if that I don't even know if that was a real label at that point. But yeah, that was like you know that was thirteen, so I guess that was nineteen eighty. That's aw- yeah. well, not awesome because unfortunately you couldn't play that show. But wow, yeah. But it's it was that sorry actually I've wanted to know because you brought them up before when you brought up No Exit. Who were East Van Halen? I've never heard of that band. Oh, East Van Halen. I mean, you know, if you really want to get into it, I got to tell you that probably East Van Halen invented grunge. I would say that that I would say that that is probably as accurate as any other statement, because East Van Halen, I guess. So I guess like how how what year was this? Fuck, I don't I'm trying to think of how East Van Halen, like what year that would have been. I mean, I was in grade eight. So, yeah, it's got to be 1980. Something like that. And East Van Halen, uh, first of all, they're the first band I ever saw with a, you know, with that whole kind of gimmick that the Happy Mondays used, where there's just a guy that kind of is, you know, got some maracas or doing some shit. He really doesn't do anything, but he looks <laughs> looks hilarious. It's like so they had that guy. And then uh, and then on drums with was Lev Delaney that played in No Exit later and played in um Tank Hog and uh, a bunch of other bands, uh, incredible drummer, really influenced by Bill Ward um, from Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then his brother, Nick Delaney, that um, is the guy that, um, you know, he's just a whole story unto himself. But I will say one thing about him is that he did bring an incredibly loud amplifier um, you know, one of those giant twin reverbs mm-hmm. uh, that has two huge 12s in it and rolled it in on wheels to Black Flag playing in the New York theater and auditioned for them, unbeknownst to them, <laughs> while they were playing on stage. So, so they were looking for a second guitar player um, and Nick knew that and just rolled his amp in and just started playing along with them and, on the stage or uh, in the other end of, end of the room no across from them in front of them as a member of the audience so you know and it was just during that really the you know the heaviest henry rollins kind of taking himself seriously yeah. and you know you know just i mean just the guys just fucking playing with black flag <laughs> they they don't they don't want him to be but that's what he was doing until someone came over and got rid of him he was a great guitar player but anyway so Dude. it was him on on guitar <laughs> that's the best band audition story uh, i know i've ever heard in my life <laughs> and then this other guy benny doro who was like really 
um, a great guitar player and could play kind of, you know, he was a Kiss fanatic. Um, he could play, you know, and, and he was a Van Halen fanatic. So he was like this rocker kid and, um, and, you know, like a guitar prodigy kind of thing. And, um, and, you know, uh, and then the singer was this guy, um, you know, Mike Armstrong that was just, you know, just looked kind of like Frankenstein and was just like absolutely, you know, quite a nasty person really overall. So he <laughs> broke my nose. So I just, I have, you know, you know, I don't know if he's listening or not, you know, I love the guy, but he broke my nose. It wasn't <laughs> that nice. You know, it, it's, uh, in a mosh he, or in a fight. No, I, I spilt his Manhattan one night. I bumped into him and I get, he was like, that's like a four shot drink that cost me $12. And then he just headbutted me in the nose. Oh my God. Yeah. And you guys have yeah. played together too. It, it was a certain attitude, but you know, the main thing is, is that they, they really, um, were kind of the first band that I ever saw that was definitely coming from punk rock, but was covering metal songs, you know, mm-hmm. and they were a pretty legendary band. Yeah. That's I've, I've like no exits. Definitely someone I'm very familiar with still looking for that LP. But uh, East Van Halen is a new one that I'm going to add because, you know, it has ex members of Black Flag in it. <laughs> well, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Tom. I'm more the legend on this one. Members of Black Flag. <laughs> well, you know, he but you know, a Nick show. actually ended up forming this. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Nick, I mean, Nick ended up forming a band called Painted Willie that did sign with SST, oh, um, yeah. and uh, and moved. Yeah, moved to LA and um and that dude um I mean he I mean I could tell you so many Nick stories. One thing that he did is he he created this persona to break into show business in Los Angeles and uh and basically had this particular look where he shaved his head down to just sort of a, a couple inch kind of crew cut that was blue representing the ocean. And then in the middle, there was an island that was brown. And in the island was a sort of cocktail umbrella. Um, so it was as if his head was an island, you know, uh, in a sea. And, um, and then, because, you know, just to drive the point home, he t- took the passenger seat of his Honda and made that into sort of an effigy of him with the same glasses on and the same kind of <laughs> ocean and island motif so that his passenger seat was kind of like a, a seat, like a sort of a car, you know, like a passenger seat version of him, you know, and then uh, he would, you know, he would sort of drive around, you know, getting to be scouted or something. Wow. Cool. It's an unusual dude, man. Yeah, definitely. That's a Canadian music dude. legend. <laughs> um, yeah, I went and visited him in Berkeley, uh, where he was, you know, taking, I can't remember what, but not advertising. And he was like, I'm going into advertising. <laughs> and I was very, I was very, I was like, oh, wow, cool. You know, like, he's like, yeah, you want to see my portfolio? I'm like, okay. And it's all these like sort of crayon drawings of like toothpaste and like different products with like 
it was it looked like it had been made by a five-year-old i was like i was like, I was like but but nick it's like it, this is this stuff is looks like it was done by a child he's like yeah but it's ideas it's like what, what's your idea it's like toothpaste makes your teeth white and it's like a picture sort of hand crayola drawing of a toothpaste tube you know it's like someone smiling like a sort of you know stick figure <laughs> yeah I, yeah very very crazy dude very funny um i mean just it, it i just could go on and on but anyway he could play the theme from popeye perfectly on guitar so that was something that he would do um, and I mean like, you know, a full on kind of like, you know, finger style version of the Popeye theme song, uh, you know, you know, that's, yeah. So, so that was kind of like, you know, he was kind of a, they were both the guitar players in East Van Halen were excellent and they could do metal convincingly. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a thing. And that was the first band I saw do that, you know, mixing kind of punk and, and metal and humor, right? This idea mm-hmm. that kind of metal was being kind of recontextualized in this kind of no- knowing that it was kind of silly, right? Yeah. But loving it anyway, right? So that was kind of a thing too, right? You know, you see this kind of trend that occurred. It started then, and then it kind of, you know, became a known and understood part of kind of punk rock's, you know, way of operating, which is like doing humorous covers of metal songs, right? That became just kind of, you know, normal, you know, but at that time I had never seen it done before, you know? Yeah. And you're right. That is something that you definitely see come out of that. Well, what would become the grunge scene? Like you see it, but with that, uh, that the, um, kiss tribute album that CZ records did, or yeah. the Melvins with those Kiss covers, or or like yeah. the Alice Cooper tribute seven inch even on sub pop. Not that Alice Cooper was metal, but like that. No, no, but exactly. But still, but you're right though. Alice Cooper, like, no, it's not metal, and it's obvious to see the connection. But at that time, yeah, it was not understood that Alice Cooper was kind of delving into the same, or was even an influence. Like Alice Cooper was a fucking influence on punk. You know, it's not really acknowledged that much, but he certainly was. You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. At the time, it was like, you know, the it's 80s Alice Cooper. We're not love it to death anymore. So right. it was, uh, yeah, it's like, it is that sort of recontextualizing of of rock cliches, I guess? Totally. Yeah, exactly. So where did you kind of go once, you know, obviously you can't play the second show? Um, actually, before we get to that, what were some of the other bands that were jumping out to you? You know, we talked about No Exit and Subhumans. Uh, were you into DOA or The Point of Sticks or any of those? I mean, the Pointed Sticks. I, I actually missed them. Uh, I loved the Pointed Sticks. I loved the first the first singles. I owned them. Um, what about like? Um, but you know, uh, DOA. DOA. I saw many, many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, once with the great lineup, um, or the greatest lineup, and many, many times after that. You know, um, I never saw them as a three piece, but I saw them once with Dave playing guitar, and and you know. And Chuck and Randy, um, uh, it's you know DOA. It's you know the first two records, obviously, really up till we're on forty five. DOA made some very classic uh, records, but really, it's kind of impossible to overemphasize how great they really were live. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they 
really at that time were just absolutely astonishing live. And, um, you know, and I saw the Ramones then too. DOA could hold up, you know, with any, with anyone really. Mm -hmm. Um, they were touring constantly, you know, they were just, they were just a great band live, you know, I don't think anyone was so concerned with record making the way that I became concerned with it. Do you know what I mean? At that time, I, I, it was much more a a question of really what it is now is just, Oh, this is a snapshot of the show, you know? Yeah. So it's to get you out to the concert. Yeah. It's, it's funny because you hear that, like, it's come on this podcast many times. Like, anyone that saw DOA at that time period is like, they were the band live. Like, no one they could were. touch them. Yeah, they were. And it's funny because you hear, you know, Black Flag obviously has that reputation for being the, the road band and the road warrior band. But you yeah. do hear about them having the off night here and there. I've never heard about DOA having an off night during that period. I never saw any off nights. But I'll tell you something that, that really DOA invented it. Even like, you know. Even the guys in Black Flag will tell, yeah. will say that, you know, like DOA were the first people in North America to get in a fucking van and just start sleeping on people's couches and playing whatever shows they could get. I mean, it was a very, very revolutionary idea, you know, putting out independent records, getting, you know, doing this whole DIY circuit. And I, and of course, that's what led to that thing that we were talking about earlier, which is community, you know, mm-hmm. this idea is like, Hey, if the band's staying at your house, no heroes, you know, all that shit, right? It's like, it's kind of like, um, it's that idea, right? Of, of the breakdown of, of the distance between the artist and, um, and the crowd, you know? And, and I think that that's kind of coming up in a different way now as, you know, community marketing is, is kind of in a way the, um, the most, you know, grassroots marketing, whatever. It's kind of in a way as a, you know, if you consider marketing as a, as a, whatever, let's, let's just pretend for a second. It's kind of a, it's, it's the lowest form of marketing. You know, it's like kind of like, hey, you want to come to this thing? Your friends are coming. We're your friends. Let's all get together. Like, that's a different thing. That's not really show business. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think that bands more and more are getting back into that in, in, in much the same way that punk rock um, became that out of really out of necessity, right? Because, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a way of getting people to care, you know? As opposed to something like that is, you know, whatever, like Rihanna, you know, it's like, I, why do I like Rihanna? Well, it's been, you know, it's, I've been, you know, blasted with it. I'm looking at it. I'm seeing it everywhere. You know, I'm buying into it. You know, it's an icon. I believe in it. You know, it's a sort of a different mentality than I'm friends with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I guess it's like, um, well, you know, it's, it's, you have that. It's like you said, it's, that's the showbiz. Like, you know, the idea that you're presenting yeah. someone a complete entertainment package versus almost like an obligation hang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, so it's, but, but, you know, that being said, it's like, you know, DOA certainly brought the showbiz. You know, they put on a great show. You know, I remember being, I was a kid. I mean, you know, this was in that same summer, you know, uh, the summer after grade seven and before grade eight. Um, I just got out of elementary school and I was obsessed with the Ramones and they were playing at the student union ballroom and it was no minors. Um, and, uh, I went there and I just hung out in front of the place and I just looked and suddenly I saw 
the Ramones, and each one of them had this, you know, beautiful woman with them. They literally were walking up as if they were like, you know, in a scene in rock and roll high school, look, you know, <laughs> in, you know, in formation <laughs> with like hot chicks, the fucking weirdest looking dudes you ever saw. And I'm like, I couldn't even talk. I could not even talk. I was like there to see them. I was there to try and, you know, I don't know, have some contact with these, these, you know, this band that was really, you know, a star thing for me. You know, I was in love with this band and there they were, you know, I could not even talk, you know, it just took my breath away, you know? Mm-hmm. And they, 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 you know, and you're right. There was that showbiz thing. They were all dressing the same. Yeah. You know, it's not like they were, you know, they all had different bands before that. They weren't dressing like that in their old bands. Like they, mm-hmm. it was very, uh, very much like they were presenting you a complete package in the same way that Kiss was. Right. Exactly. And the thing is, is that that's kind of part of, you know, earlier when I was talking conservativeness of punk rock as it had become, you know, it was really like, you know, people were really motivated towards this kind of idea of authenticity or like, you're just a normal person. I'm just a normal person. There's no, there's no heroes. There's no stars. It's just us, you know, it's like, but it's like, you know, the sex pistols said that shit, but they sure as hell didn't mean it. Like, look at them. You know what I mean? That's not, that's not true, you know? And, um, and you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you really don't want to watch someone that's just some ordinary person on stage. Like, who the hell wants that? You know, it's like, that's not what I paid money for. I paid money to lose myself and, and see someone that is larger than life or, or doing something, you know, expressing something that is no not usually expressed, right? I think, though, there is a place. It's almost like, though, now you do have where people do want that, you know, not for every entertainer they want, but they want people do want that surprise, like just that normal person who gets up on stage and kills it at karaoke, <coughs> you know, like that, yeah. that's what American idol is, I guess. Totally. And uh, I think American idol is, you know, yeah. American idols. Have, yeah. Well, that's a very, you're right. That's a real reflection of our contemporary world where, you know, uh, but, but really ultimately American idol is kind of, you know, it's about seeing the machinations of the star system. Mm-hmm. It's about kind of, you know, just like reality, television in general seems to be kind of um you know demystifying many many avenues of of living even pawn shops you know um <laughs> I, I somehow think they're still putting a little bit of hollywood sheen on those oh, pawn yeah. shop shows <laughs> yeah well it's all part of the same thing you know it's like by seeing the machinations of the star system somehow it actually makes the star system seem even more you know otherworldly you know yeah yeah no I, I think until until pawn stars has one of the guys pull a gun on one of the patrons that's it's still kind of skirting that line of reality a little bit <laughs> see see that's why you're in tv and i'm just fucking out here languishing you know <laughs> well that's uh, believe me they get me on that show it's going to get a little more realistic <laughs> um but uh so back to kind of your journey um so what what was your kind of next move after you know you played this show you had this band um, it went well what was your like were you kind of like at this point already super invested in going to local shows or was this kind of oh yeah okay well I I mean I really you know I really uh, really was very focused on on what was happening locally I mean there were just great there were great records getting made you know like I I remember you know being on. Uh, 
the uh, the bus and uh, seeing Mary Jo Kopechny, the bass player from the Modernettes, on the bus. And I just what oh it just it blew my mind. You know, yeah. I was wearing a Modernettes shirt that I had bought <laughs> at Quintessence. I am on the bus, and there is a rock star on the bus with me. And I say to my friend, that's Barry Joe from the Modernettes. And he's like, who? Or whatever, you know. And, and, and I, I don't know who it was. You know, probably I would recognize them now. But, you know, I was 12. And looking over and, you know, this guy saying, you know, who's obviously with her, saying, you should, you should talk to her. Stars love it when you talk to them. <laughs> when you recognize them, you know. So I'm like... Hey, Mary Jo, I love your band. She's like, oh, yeah, thanks. You know, and I'm just thinking, what the fuck is going on? Like, why, <laughs> why is this rock star on the bus? Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I should have sort of taken the hint at that point. It's like, you know, <laughs> this might not be the best, best gig, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, the problem is you don't realize the financial realities of being in a full time band. Till you're already committed to being in that full time band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, did you uh, did you kind of want to start another band immediately after your first band broke up, or is there like? Well, you know- I got sent away to private school because of you know because of my attitude and because of my you know getting into drugs and punk and you know still a virgin, but but really everything else, you know, <laughs> I you know. I got the second I got the second and third part of the sex drugs and rock and roll and I and I got sent away to boarding school. Um so so uh you know I went to to private school where I met actually Pete Bourne um who became the drummer in uh Circle C copyright and also uh Tom Pitts who became the singer in a band called Short Dogs Grow and we in San Francisco later kind of a you know part of that whole kind of soul asylum grungy thing that was going on but but uh you know before soul asylum became a huge band or whatever Mm -hmm. and uh and and uh um uh we had a band at brentwood college called grave mistake so um we were like a private school punk band (laughs) and uh and you know that was kind of that was grade nine so that was right after the psychotic dick bites and i you know really punk rock was just listening to records at that point in this kind of, you know, boarding school for boys, you know, getting hit with a stick and, and, you know, being, you know, made to wear whatever various numbers of uniforms, like, Oh, it's number one day, number three day, number whatever day. And, and, uh, you know, just basically just, I shaved my head (laughs) and wanted to die for a year and, uh, and, you know, got caught uh you know like uh trying to go into the woods to jerk off by some prefect and like you know fucking humiliated and you know like hit and like actually come to think of it now that i'm thinking of it right now it's like so that guy this prefect that you know i was like you know uh had like a playboy in my bathrobe or something and he he caught me, uh, this pre- prefect. Of course, he himself had never wanted to masturbate yeah, as, a, as a teen boy. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, hazed me and whatever and was just generally abusive. And then later, when Slow was really kind of uh, getting a lot of attention, 
he recognized me um, and was, you know, sucking up. And of course, uh, this was in a 7-Eleven at 3 a.m. when he was working the night shift. And so that was a great moment for me. Uh, You know, know, uh, we had that band and uh, we went, actually, I organized a field trip, if you if you uh if you can imagine of private school kids that we got you know we got to we could organize our like hey i want to take you know we're going to go to the aquarium for biology or whatever so i organized a field trip to go to the oap hall in victoria to see x with the subhumans (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) and that was the wild gift tour and um and that was a great show that's were you able to go to? Any, I guess you guys are in the middle of nowhere, right? Oh yeah, we were like so, out out there in Hell's Half Acre. Yeah. So did you guys just like you must? Would you have time to practice or like we're? I guess yep. they had gear and stuff there. Yeah. Well, no, no, we had our own gear. Yeah. No, we uh, we um, no, we all uh, we practiced there quite regularly. Yeah. It was kind of like a. It was a great. It was a great uh, respite from the pressures of of, you know, a boarding school environment, not a pleasant place to be when you, uh, have the temperament that I do. You know, I don't like being told what to do. I don't like having to do things. I just like to do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. Um, and you know, even more so at that point. <laughs> What's, um, <clears throat> this, so what did this band kind of sound like? Uh, like a punk band, like a pretty melodic punk band, you know, pretty, pretty, straightforward punk yeah did we guys, all wrote songs and yeah did you guys record it all there there are some actual um cassettes yeah there's there's a cassette uh there's a really funny cassette where um where this uh guy that later became quite a famous opera singer who was uh pete Bourne's cousin comes in and he says that sounded really great, guys. And I hear this little voice that's mine just go, do you really think so? <laughs> it's like really, really funny, actually. That's awesome. Did you guys, re- did the uh, tape come out? Did you release it or is it just for yourselves? Then? No, God, no, yeah. no, it's not releasable. It was like, you know, quite awful, actually, to be honest. Well, I got to hear this because you're, you're I'll selling send it me to you, man. I would love I'll to. Send- oh, it's you. terrible. Yeah, <laughs> I'll send it to you. Yeah, I, I'll I find do, it. Yeah. I like all types of punk, good and terrible. So I'm well, sure this, I can find a place in my heart for it. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Did the psychotic dick bites uh, record? No, no. And what was the vibe of that band? You know, that was pretty. Fuck. I mean, it was kind of random. You know, like when you. It doesn't really matter what you want your vibe to be when you're you know, doing something at that level is just kind of whatever you can do is what it is, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, uh, definitely it, it, it had a, you know, it was, it was kind of like sex pistols, Ramones influenced, but you know, with, with stupid lyrics, like, you know, we had a song called killer bees, um, you know, about the killer bee threat you know that sort of thing. You know, it had a humorous element to it, definitely. And uh, so, when you kind of finished up this year at the school, uh, were you? Did you kind of hit Vancouver again with a vengeance, or is it kind of slower to get back into the scene? Uh, 
you know, I mean, I, I there was no there was nothing to avenge, man. I was not like a player at all in Vancouver. <laughs> like just, you know, I was like a nerd that kind of was, you know, I had some friends that were doing stuff, you know. Uh but grade 10 is I guess when I came back to Vancouver. And then I went to um an alternative school that a lot of pretty cool kids went. One of them became my girlfriend later and she was dave Gregg's girlfriend at that time and uh from doa and that was this uh woman justine who um became you know a really long-term girlfriend and who i was just kind of madly in love with from day one uh but you know we were just friends for a long time and so i met her and then through her i met a lot of kind of you know what the in crowd let's put it that way as as slow started to actually become a thing, you know, um, you know, uh, she's the girl that, that, uh, confidential by the modernettes was written about. She's also the girl that 13 by DOA was written about. So she definitely was a muse for many, you know, musicians in Vancouver, uh, and a really amazing, amazing girl. Um, and, uh, you know, and she, she kind of, in a lot of ways became an influence on me in the sense of, of, you know, I was reading a lot, but she was, a, she was really into literature and, you know, she, she was really into, into rock too, you know, also. Hmm. So that was a big thing too. You know, she was really into the Rolling Stones. She was really into the Stooges, you know, and of course she lived with Dave Gregg and Dave Gregg is, you know, was, um, you know, a a full on kind of rock encyclopedia, you know, and had a massive record collection. So when I became friends with her, I was hanging around over there quite a lot. And that's kind of one of the first times that I saw that kind of thing that I was describing where, where really you see more like the history of, of where it got to, you know, how it got there. Like the Stooges. Oh, I get it. Alice Cooper. Oh, the stones. Like, Oh, I, you know, garage rock and then you know getting into like i mean dave was a hendrix fanatic you know like getting into kind of just seeing music in a less kind of stringent way like that it's all about punk all about new wave and just realizing like no this is a part of something that is bigger than that you know mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so that's uh so you know from there uh you've mentioned slow was kind of forming at the same time how did slow begin to come together well, slow, um, you know, Christian and I kind of had been playing with a couple, you know, a few different other people. It was Christian and I from the very beginning. Um, but we didn't have a rhythm section, you know, and, uh, we had, we had played with, with Pete and Eric that, that actually, you know, were in circle C, but, but they, um, uh, you know, Pete went back to Toronto. Like this was like, actually like Pete, like I said, I met him in boarding school and, and actually the band that became copywriter circle C was, was did, a, did our first show before any slow show. Like nope. we played new year's Eve of, you know, maybe I was, you know, 15, you know, um, no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, so actually like, even like that song against the glass was a song from that. Oh. So, um, <clears throat> but you know, uh, um, we just, you know, Pete had moved back to Toronto and, and, you know, Christian had known Terry and Ham from, from elementary school. So we just jammed with them one day and then I heard it, you know, I heard like, okay, 
you know, these guys sound, they really, you know, they, they were into like the who and, you know, Alice Cooper, and they were really into that kind of flashy bass and, and drums, uh, really, you know, kind of hard rock. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it just worked, you know, it worked right away. Felt good. And so what were, uh, what were the early shows like then? You mentioned no one liked you guys. Uh, at first <laughs> what was kind well of also you know i mean i was just very you know i was a very uh confrontational um singer at that point you know i mm-hmm. really i really wanted to to uh you know i really i was really into you know black flag leaving uh you know uh johnny lyden like iggy you know those were my heroes you know I was not, uh, I was not looking to make friends, you know, I, I, I was looking to make enemies actually, you know, so that also is sort of a, um, an interesting aspect of things was the band was, was actually probably in some ways, maybe, you know, in some ways garnered a lot of attention, but in some ways perhaps was held back by the fact that I was such a kind of confrontational person as, as a performer at that point, you know? You mentioned earlier that you were like kind of a socially awkward kid and you avoided social situations, which sounds very familiar to me. <clears throat> and yeah. then to be that kind of confrontational singer, uh, you know, I, once again, it sounds very familiar to me too. Yeah. Was that like a reaction? Like, did you feel you could finally be free on stage? Um, I'm well, asking for well, a friend, of course. Yeah. Well, I love that question because I think that, you know, I think that happened, you know, grade all through elementary school. Like it's like, you know, I went through elementary school. I hated elementary school. You know, the kids did not really um, like me, you know, mm-hmm. overall. You know, I'd always have, um, I would always have some friend, you know, who was, you know, probably younger than me or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was like a fucking outcast, you know. Um, we moved around all the time. I never had a, a chance to cement kind of, you know, childhood long term relationships. Um, you know, not that I'm, uh, saying that was, well, whatever. The point is, is that I just really wasn't very socialized. Um, you know, I spent most of my time reading and listening to music, um, and, you know, pretty quickly writing as well. Um, and, uh, so all through elementary school, like it was kind of this lost cause of like dreaming for social acceptance and, you know, hoping that, that, you know, I would be, uh, you know, brought into whatever the fuck people were doing at that time, you know, like, you know, what, I don't remember what kids do, but you know, that sort of stuff that everyone was doing, you know, like Mm -hmm. hoping a girl would like me hoping, you know, hoping I could just fucking cope, you know? And then in grade eight, when I discovered drugs and punk, you know, which I, you know, like I said, I discovered punk a little bit earlier, but like basically when I discovered drugs and other people that were into punk, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, well then I realized suddenly, oh wait, no, I don't, I don't actually never even wanted anything to do with those people. It's just, I just suddenly got the message like, you know, it's me against them actually. And I don't, and I don't have any interest in fitting in. In fact, I want to, you know, fuck them up, (laughs) you know, I think this is, uh, it sounds like I'm talking to myself about this yeah. in a conversation I've never had out loud because, yeah, I feel the exact same way. You know, it's like, you know, you're striving to become part of something and then all of a sudden you're like, why the fuck would I ever have wanted to be a part of that? Yeah, and it's exactly. 
Um, and it's through this music. Um, I didn't have the same experience with the drug aspect because it wasn't really, I guess, as pervasive in Toronto at the time in the punk scene. Was it pervasive in the punk scene at that point in Vancouver? You know, um, I mean, just it was, um, you know, like, yes, there were drugs around. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think that, you know, I personally was driven towards you know, escape, you know, in general. So like, you know, for me, I think that drugs and alcohol kind of did something for me that they, ne- they weren't necessarily doing for other people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, so there's that, but then, you know, very quickly actually, yeah. Like, you know, and, and, and it's kind of a sordid tale because really, um, you know, what happened with drugs in Vancouver is, was really that it came from within the actual kind of upper echelons of the punk scene you know actually Mm -hmm. and i don't know if you were aware of that or not but you know there was there was a you know there was some drug high level drug dealing going on that was directly uh associated with you know doa and and you know and really just kind of the whole super leftist political scene Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. which you know it's kind of it's kind of fucked up you know when you think about that but you know there was in a lot of ways the attitude i encountered you know around you know hard drugs heroin etc that really began to take their toll on on you know young people at that time was just you know hey you know we're free we do whatever the fuck we want addiction is a um a fallacy basically uh, you know, it's propaganda from the state and, uh, and, you know, we should be allowed to do whatever we want. And so here have this, you know, and, and actually that really was going on. And a lot of people got addicted to heroin a lot, you know, and, and, and I can trace it back to that same source, you know? And so, yeah, it was heroin already at that point. Like it was, It was heroin sort of started to really get in, get in there around 83, 84 into Vancouver, into the punk scene itself. Mm -hmm. Before that, I don't think so. But you know, that, that came out of, uh, yeah, that came out of, uh, out of, um, well, whatever. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be a, you know, be a narc and end up in, you know, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, we don't have to name any names, but <clears throat> it's it's one of those things where it's uh, it's a tragedy when you can kind of see where something that probably ruined I don't know hundreds of people's lives now m- m- thousands millions maybe uh, you know can be kind of traced back to one person bringing it into a scene. It's a uh, yeah. it's a special tragedy that way. It seems. Yeah. It's 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 it's. Uh... It's fucked up. <laughs> and it's also it, punk was just like a marketing tool for that at the time. Like obviously there were cautionary tales, but still like you, Sid Vicious, Johnny Thunders, yeah. like it's uh, yeah. like God, like like a lot, all of New York pretty much at one point. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's just kind of it was, it was in your face. It was thrown in your face. Yeah, that's definitely true. Where did you you know back to? Uh, sort of more cheerier subjects, I guess. Um, when, when slow kind of started clicking with people, when did you find that happen? Like, had you guys put up the seven inch by that point or is it before that? 
No, it was definitely after that. Oh, you know, really? I think that, oh, yeah. No, I think when the, when the 7-inch came out, you know, I mean, d- don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everybody was just like, you know, leaving, holding their noses all the time. But yeah. I'm just saying that some people loved it and some people hated it. It was like that, you know. Um, and, you know, the 7-inch, which, you know, has, has been written about many times, you know, was rejected by CATR as sounding too rock, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, college rock, punk rock. Like there was just no real place for it. It just, there was just no, was there was no kind of idea that that was a thing, what we were doing, you know? Well, it's funny too, because that record comes out 85. It's like, I guess Zulu records too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and I'm looking at this from geographically and temporally a, a a distance, but it seems like that's the beginning of the new scene in Vancouver. Like it just, or like it's new crop of bands. Like we talked about the quintessence and the friends records and like, you know, yeah. humans and, and point sticks and stuff that modernettes, that's almost like, to me, it, it goes, that's like over. And then there's like this new scene that kind of emerges around. Yeah. Not really. You know, that's man, what... <laughs> I mean, let's, well, it's just like, let's be real. Like, yeah. I mean, like, you know, those bands, those quintessence and friends bands were, there was like many fucking great bands, right? Yeah. Many great records too, actually. I mean, you know, like the Modernettes record is incredible. You know, yeah. it's, it's, and it's, you know, of course it's, it's one of Bob Rock's first production gigs, right? So. Yeah. And all those so, young I mean, Canadian records too. Like, yeah. I totally forgot yeah, about those. So he, uh, you know, he obviously is a very talented dude, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, obviously hasn't made my favorite records really <laughs> since then. But, yeah. but, but that being said, you know, like he, he's a, you know, he's a major talent and he was able to just kind of, you know, put some real uh, production chops into those records and, you know, some other scene well like what the hell are you talking about like i don't i don't even know what i don't even know what other bands there were there's no fucking other great bands sorry but i, I, like, I, I like the enigmas i like i like uh i like a lot of actually, okay but Mumandi it's okay records and stuff like the uh 5440 well, early stuff all right well then well then you know what it's like I I will I will I'm not gonna go around dissing, you know Vancouver <laughs> bands, <laughs> but I'm I'm just saying like those were classic records, you know the Modernettes record, the yeah. Point of Sticks records, those were like actually like very very uh, you know relevant to what was going on internationally, and I don't really think that slow um, hearkened another wave of that. I think that that really Vancouver has never kind of reached that. Um, fruition again, you know, uh, of those kind of late seventies, early eighties records, you know? Well, you would have to, like, it would be it, like, I was just thinking about this now and I, it's like, I can't think of another punk scene population wise that produced so many incredible, like, I guess songwriters, but just like, you know, like you think about Art Bergman, you think about you point sticks, modernettes, you think about yourself. Like there's just so many great songs that came out of that scene. Like it, <laughs> it's disproportionate to the yeah. population, it seems. Completely. And you know, it was a result of of, you know, a lot of the conditions um 
of that time, which were, you know, welfare. Everyone was on welfare. So there was a lot of free time, cheap space. Everyone could find a place to live and play and live on welfare. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and then kind of a very, you know, organic, um, creative, you know, scene at that point of kind of openness and cross pollination, you know, um, I think that, I think that, you know, as you destroy people's time, you know, as they, they, they don't have time to do anything other than work, you're going to find that that really affects things. And at that time, really people didn't have to do anything they didn't want to because the welfare system in Canada was so lax and it was so easy to get. And basically that covered your basic needs and everything else was just kind of like whatever you could hustle, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's a special set of circumstances, um, in Vancouver, you know? Yeah. Cause you don't like, obviously, and I'm from Toronto and you're definitely not going to catch me bad milking the Toronto bands. But I, I, I can't think of who, you know, I can't think of the same depth of songs, especially like on a songwriting level that came out totally. here um, as, as there. No, no, definitely not. And, and I think you could say that about anywhere really in North America except New York and L.A. Like Vancouver is the third scene, you know, that yeah. produced, produced um, you know, like even like San Francisco, like where else is there? No, it really is. It's like, you know. New York, LA, Vancouver. Those are the three North American cities that are, you know, to me, you know, produce the most great stuff. Yeah, I would definitely say for like first wave punk and also like hardcore stuff too, like, you know, DOA and subhumans. But I mean, like, just kind of like that classic anthemic punk rock. Like, yeah, you can't, you don't find that sort of list of great 45s even coming out of, yeah, like Philadelphia or certainly no. not, uh, you know, other places. No. That's for sure. Um, no. How did that Zulu record come about? Like you've been um, hanging around Quintessence and. Yeah. So this was, you know, this is a while later now. Um, but, you know, I, I knew Grant as that person, yeah. you know, the person that, that I trusted with a lot of stuff. I mean, the guy like, you know, he, he turned me on to many, many records, you know, I bought them without ever hearing them, you know, <laughs> imports that couldn't be opened and played, you know, just like, okay, man, when, when you're like that age, like 12 bucks is a lot of money. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like Grant McDonough was the guy I trusted, you know, I'd ask him what to buy. Um, and, uh, so he was the first person I brought it to, you know, I just said, Hey, we just recorded this, you know, we'd gone into this, this, um, inexpensive studio and got very lucky in the sense that the guy that was recording it kind of had a clue, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, and which, you know, it was the eighties, right. Recording was, had just reached an all time, you know, grossness to it. You know, it's like huge gated reverbs and everything was just, you know, sounding like that. And, and this guy like kind of was a sort of seventies dude, you know, with a big mustache and, uh, and you know, we went in there and recorded that and I played it for Grant and I was just like, I could just tell he was just, you know, he was pretty floored and, um, you know, he was like, I want to put this out. And I was like, Oh my God, are you kidding? Really? It's like, yeah, let's just put it out. I'm putting out these releases. Let's put this out. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, 
I was like, you know, I felt like it could be huge. And I told him that. And he was like, no, I don't know about that. You know, <laughs> it's always good to have a label manage expectations. <laughs> I'm like this. I think this could be like, like a huge record. He's like, yeah, I don't think so. But you know, like, <laughs> um, were you a fan of the action knots? Were they, like you know, what? A, a band? At yeah. All? Yeah, I was actually. I like that 45. Yeah. I think it's pretty sick. Yeah, yeah. Tony Walker is a very great performer too, um, the the guitar player, and um, you know, I, yeah, I liked the Actionauts a lot. Yeah. So were they like, where were you guys kind of playing scene wise at this point? Like, what were the other bands kind of around you? Oh man, I mean, you know, just whatever, just the the you know the whatever you could get. You know, yeah. I guess it it was like, who did we play with? I you know just weird stuff the first gig we played was opening for asian orange okay and uh and i got that gig by begging you know <laughs> i just you know just called up and started begging and and they gave me the gig um and uh then you know after that it was kind of like you know the buddha at first the smiling buddha we mm-hmm. would play at quite a lot and you know that was that was the same kind of group of people that you know had been in you know, No Exit, East Van Halen, et cetera, this kind of rock scene started to emerge. This other band, Sudden Impact. Um, this Not, band. Wait, Sudden Impact? Not the Sudden Impact from here. A different Sudden Impact. Yeah. Oh, okay. Different, different Sudden Impact. What would they um, sound like? Very fucking great. Oh, um, wow. They were really like a couple of guitar players, uh, both dead now. Um, one got killed by the cops um, in, a, in an illegal chokehold after they raided the girl op he was working at Fuck. and um and then the other guy uh died of aids um he was actually closeted but as it turned out later he was gay i didn't know until he was he was on his deathbed but anyway he was a great guy too his name was mike um and those two basically the first thing that happened with that band was the singer mink died of an overdose Um, and that was a real, that sort of sent a shockwave through our whole kind of scene because Mink was like this, you know, really kind of a Greek God, like just an incredibly good looking macho kind of, you know, front man of the old school and then singing for these kind of, you know, totally Ramones and Aerosmith obsessed wasters, you know, (laughs) um, and, uh, and they, they were really, really great band, uh, and then this other band, Bad Attitude, um, unfortunate name, uh, which was, uh, which was um, you know, the, the guys, really most of kind of what later went on to form Tank Hog. Um, and then just, you know, other stuff like the Bill of Rights, uh, mm. Immoral Majority, I think maybe even were around at that time, or, you know, the Fits or something. I don't know. It was like we were playing with like a lot of hardcore bands, a lot of just whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. There was no scene to speak of until, until like all of us kind of like drug using rock obsessed punks started kind of making our own scene, you know. And and one of the places we started playing was this Chinese restaurant on Hastings Street upstairs. And I'm trying to remember the name of it, but anyway, it was like basically they didn't have a proper liquor license, so they had to have like a Chinese buffet every night, uh, and it was just disgusting disgusting i like they i don't think they ever changed the food they just left it you know it was like decoration you were in you know if you ate it you know well, i never even ate it and i mean i was hungry but uh, I was gonna say, did you ever see anyone eating it or is it just like 
a, a no. I don't recall no-go. it. No, I don't recall ever seeing anyone eat any of it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but then you could play, right? Yeah. So there was kind of a scene up there. Um, yeah. You talked about that no exit LP. <clears throat> you know, sorry, the band a lot. Um, they're one of those bands that now, because that record is one of the most valuable Canadian records of all time and, you know, super sought after, but they're like a band that no one talks about. It's almost like, you know, outside of record collecting circles, like an unknown kind of quantity. Uh, well, well, I'll tell you something about that band, which is that, you know, the original record that came out is, you know, it is what it is. It's like, it's not a great record. Um, but there was a moment in time when they were a great band. Unfortunately, that never got captured on record. So um, they went on, did they go on way longer, I guess, than that? Yeah. Opening? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they became a, like a really great band, like, uh, which was, again, that guy Lev Delaney I was telling you about on drums, his brother, Nick Delaney with the island on his head. Uh, yes. That guy was on guitar. And then this guy chunk on bass and then, and then, and then scruff the singer also played guitar and they were just absolutely fantastic for about a year. Um, like truly great. Uh, but I don't think it was ever captured, you know, on record. And so that guy, that the drummer is the guy that took over. Cause didn't the other drummer join toxic reasons or. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other drummer was Jimmy Joe. Yeah. And yeah. So- he joined toxic reasons. Yeah. Man, it's like that, that totally another band that it has that connection that shows, I guess, how important Vancouver is to like global punk and hardcore. Totally. Yeah. Uh, we had talked earlier that there was a point where slow clicked, you know, like people kind of got it. Was it after you guys found this venue to kind of build a little scene around? Fuck, man. I just like, I'm trying to sort of, you know. Because you wind up playing Expo, right? So there's got to be a... Yeah, I mean, what happened, man, is that we started getting a lot of press. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was like a full page in the Globe and Mail after our first single. You know, uh, it, it was... It, 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 we started getting really noticed by press. But, uh, but as far as the audiences go... I don't know, man. I, I, you know, it was always kind of hit and miss. I mean, we played this thing called the Zulu Review. That was kind of a big deal because we were playing the Commodore, you know. But, you know, by the time the real, the real stuff kind of was really happening, like, we were almost broken up. Like, you know, the Cramps show was just before Expo. So we played there, Thunderbird Arena. And that really should have been the stepping stone into a whole different, you know, um, a whole different level of, of playing, but really, I don't know. We never really, never really took advantage of it, you know, like, but we went, then we did expo, then all that happened. Then we went on tour, played Toronto, you know, sort of limped back to Vancouver, played that last show and broke up, you know, it's probably that Canadian tour that kills most of the bands, you know, like that trying to go either from Toronto to Vancouver or Vancouver to Toronto as a touring band and back. It's hard. It's hard, man. And, and, you know, it's, it was especially hard then, I think, because, you know, there was no internet, there was much music, which we were lucky enough to be on, you know, I'll just say this, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's for me, I wanted to be, taken seriously as an artist you know i wanted i felt like i had something to say and i felt like this thing had kind of um you know being the singer 
in this band is kind of like being a vessel where everyone can fucking say anything about you and, you know, be as disgusting as they want and talk to you uh, in whatever way they want. And, you know, it's sort of like that was kind of what I put myself into. You know what I mean? And uh, and I got bored of it. You know, I got bored of, of people thinking they knew me, mm-hmm. thinking they knew stuff about me, thinking that they were, you know, that they could rightfully judge me. And it was like, you know, that very uncomfortable position between kind of being part of a scene, which I was never part of, but, you know, uh, and kind of being a celebrity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a t- it's kind of it's like singing in a rock and roll band is a little bit of a toxic position, as I'm sure you know, you know. It's like people really fucking project their, um, their uh, most vile attributes onto you, you know? yeah. and, and and you know you're asking for it, right? You're asking for it. I like, um, you know, it's funny because like we uh, we a couple of years ago fucked up, did a record, and Gord Downey sang on on a song for it, right? And so we're in the studio talking, and he's like, just so you know singers have to wear it differently. Like the things you take on as the front person in a band is totally different than the experience of anyone else in a band because you're the one that (laughs) you're the shit magnet for, for, for everyone. And it's, and he didn't use shit magnet. That was my turn of phrase that I put in there. Uh, But that's good. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) that's my contribution to the story now. But he, uh, but it really, it's true. Like, and it's like, if man, if he feels it at his level, then it's gotta be real. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's very interesting for me because it's like, you know, I never wanted to reform this band and I, and I, you know, and I wouldn't be putting kind of effort into it in the way I am right now. If, if, if it just hadn't felt so right musically, you know, and if it just suddenly hadn't felt like the right time, like, you know, it, it, before this, I was just, you know, I, I'd sort of thought about, you know, Hey, maybe I'll try singing some rock again, you know? And, and just, it was like, you know, I always felt like I was too old kind of just past it, you know? And then suddenly now it's like, I don't know what, I guess I've come around the other side and, and, you know, I've gotten so old that I'm like, you know, uh, you know, back in, back at the beginning again, somehow, you know, I've gone full circle, but I just, I just, um, I, I was not prepared for the amount of positivity that has resulted. I did not expect that, you know, and I also didn't expect that basically, you know, I'm singing in a rock band, uh, singing in slow again. And all of a sudden, you know, I've gone from kind of respected, you know, producer of, you know, art shows and, you know, like, weird you know music and pop extravaganzas and kind of just stuff i've been doing for the last long time and just suddenly it's kind of like no i'm i'm i am the you know place that you point your negativity to you know (laughs) and it's it's kind of a fucking drag you know actually in some ways you know well like it's It's, for a a band that only put out two two real releases you know It, it, you guys, and there's a, a lot of amazing songs there, but you did write one of the all time Canadian rock songs, like one of the, one of the great songs, you know, and like people can say what they want, but there, that's why people still talk about this band to this day is because, you know, there's only so many bands that have ever wrote a definitive song and wrote a song that 
that resonates to this day and it's just like holds weight against everything else you know and it's like well that's an that's that's a very nice thing for you to say i i mean i i guess i just didn't see that really to be honest with you I think it's hard to, it's probably hard when you're in it, you know, to, to step away and look at it from the outside and stuff like that. But it's like, it's, it's true. It's like, it's, it's funny when you're in the band, like I'm about to get back into doing it again. And it's like, I know within six months, I'm going to be like, okay, let's go back to trying to make wrestling TV shows. (laughs) Cause yeah, the shit it's taxing. It's it's taxing. taxing. Yeah, it's emotionally it's emotionally taxing. It's not yeah, yeah. It's, it's not hard work. It's just emotional labor. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And and the other uh the last thing I want to get to before I I let you go back and live your life after keeping you here for most of the morning in your time. Uh what was the reaction like after Expo because like obviously there's a lot of people I'm sure interested in a band, but I imagine there would have also been a lot of vitriol thrown at you from people that that was their first exposure to you guys and what you were doing. And I was just wondering what was that like kind of as like a young musician dealing with the repercussions or the fallout from Expo? Well, I mean, that's kind of what I was saying to you, right? It's just kind of like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like I didn't know what I was doing, but that being said, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of like the results of it, you know? Um, yeah, it was a lot of, it was a lot of negativity, a lot of it, you know, mm-hmm. not only from mainstream media, but also from, you know, like, Oh, my band was going to play. I mean, there were 10 bands canceled, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of these bands, you know, like obviously like, you know, we were getting kind of called out for that. Right. So yeah. there was like, I mean, no one, no one knew, what we were going to do, you know? (laughs) Um, but that, that definitely informed our decision, uh, to play was just, you know, the fact that we just felt, you know, I felt like that, you know, we could do a lot more damage playing than not playing, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and you know, it's, it's really hard to kind of, you know, really realize how, you know, I mean, Trump now gives you a little bit of an indication of kind of that kind of a, a thing. But, you know, it's it's, you know, these guys that that put on Expo, you know, the, you know, Bill Bennett and Jimmy Patterson and all these fucking guys like, you know, they they were just they just represented like Bill Vanderzam. Like these guys were just like, I mean, they were like real flim flam, you know, just absolutely fake counterfeit you know they were turning these kind of like you know hastings street trick rooms into like cubicles for tourists to stay in you know and and meanwhile just like you know the poor just basically ending up on the street you know um and uh and so you know that was that was why people weren't playing it and and then you had all these people that just you know just really didn't give a fuck about any of that and just were trying to kind of or maybe they did give a fuck but they just didn't really see the connection towards them playing expo right yeah and those people that that all played i mean you know they were kind of unhappy they weren't getting the thousand dollars they weren't uh they weren't playing for a lot of people uh and not only that but it's like uh you know the band that that 
um, you know, ruined it for them also was just getting tons and tons of attention, you know? So it, it maybe definitely made for some, you know, bad feelings all around. Well, it's gotta be one of the all time Canadian performances too. Uh, Tom, thank you, man, again, for coming on the show, getting to talk to you about all this stuff and, and, and like a scene that, you know, I think we both agree put out some of the best music ever and is kind of overlooked in the way that it should be looked at at least. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Hey, thank you so much. And, you know, like I said, I'm really into your band and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you, Tom, for coming on the show. And Tom will be back for a part two. Next time, maybe I'll be a little more uh, combative on the breaking down of the barrier between performer and an audience. Because that's the only reason I got up on stage. is Because I went to these shows and I was like, oh, shit, we all can do it. Anyone can do it. And, uh, yeah, that's, but anyway, that'll be saved for another episode. Speaking of another episode, next week on the show, we've got, we got something special. Next week on the show, it's Iron and Wine himself, Sam Bean. That's right. This is a, a one that I recorded a long time ago. Uh, unfortunately, during all the chaos around my mom's uh, passing, um, it got lost and misplaced and recently kind of rediscovered it. And it's, it's a really fun, awesome conversation. Um, I, I strongly recommend you listen to it. If you are a fan of iron and wine, because Sam's someone that's been interviewed a lot and always hints about this punk rock past, you know, and like, and no one ever really goes deep with them. So next week we go deep and we turn up, some awesome connections. More on that on uh, Turn Out of Punk, which will be dropping uh, pretty soon, actually. It's like, because this is so late, but that's my own fault. So, you know, you get a lot of shows this week, but hey, content, yay. So uh, I will see you next week. Go out there and make your own culture and make more of this goddamn content. Let's fill this bubble till it bursts. And then God only knows what I'm going to do. But until then... Enjoy these punk interviews. Bye, everyone.